Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the American Reformer Podcast. This is Josh Abitoy, Executive Director. I have with me, as usual, Timon Klein, Editor-in-Chief. We have a special guest today, uh, John Harris. Uh, on the other side of the uh, recording seat today, John. Um, John is the host of Conversations That Matter. You've maybe seen it or, or heard about it on YouTube. Um, he's on Twitter. He is a frequent contributor at The Truth Script. Um, his writing appears in a number of different outlets and most recently appeared in American Reformer. Uh, he wrote an article just last week uh, entitled Conservative Nazi Hunters. Uh, very provocative, delightfully provocative article. And uh, I think that's a lot of what we're here to talk about today. But, uh, John, thank you so much for hopping on today. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Yeah, Josh, Timon, really good to be with you guys. Excellent. Well, John, why don't you why don't you just tee this issue up for us by telling us a little bit about your, your the basic thesis in this article? Yeah, I no, well, I'll get, I'll start at a personal level here, if that's okay. I I noticed this most prominently, I think, in some of the critiques of Stephen Wolf's book that there was a tendency among the um, reviewers to compare him with Hitler or Nazis, and of course as a conservative, you're used to that from the left all the time. But this was coming from people that I thought were not just on the right, but even some who are on the evangelical right. So, you know, deep red. And I thought this is very strange. And it, it's been a few years of seeing this stuff kind of uh, slowly make its way into political conservative circles. Uh, I think of um, just just even the narrative that I think Dinesh D'Souza really made popular and, and you know, not trying to single him out just him at least but um this whole like democrats are the real racist democrats uh don't abide by their own rules and therefore we're justified in voting against them and canceling them almost if we if we're going to apply their rules to themselves and um and, and this is of course bled into democrats are the nazis i think jonah goldberg wrote a book years ago i read it a liberal fascism where he tries to make these connections and there are some connections but um it's just uh, it's just interesting, though, that this is a very modern new thing, it seems like, on the right. And I didn't come across this when reading older magazines or books from conservative thinkers. They never talked about this. When the Nazis came up, in fact, I, I realized it most recently in a Roger Scruton book, uh, How to Be a Conservative, which I think came out like 10 years ago, right before he, he died. Roger Scruton has a little section. It's it's like not even a paragraph, but he critiques the Nazis a little bit and he critiques it as an ideology. He says that's the problem with Nazism is it's ideological. And I suspected that that was probably true of other critiques. So um, I went to the National Review Archives, which to, to me, I, there might be other standards people might want to use, but I thought that's a really good like starting point to see what they were saying in the 50s, their writers. And sure enough, there were there was nothing uh, and I went from like 19, I don't know, 50, whenever it started, I think, into 19, like 75. There, there were no articles that critiqued conservatives or, or just people who were Nazi-esque, I guess, 
in the ways that you see conservatives doing it today. It was very different. And, um, and, and so I wanted to make that comparison and just show that we've shifted. So there, there's a, whether you want to call it an evolution or a de-evolution that's taken place in the conservative political sphere in the way we handle uh, Nazism and fascism. And I don't think it's a good thing. I think it's reflective of accepting the left's framing. And if we're accepting the left's framing, then I, and I didn't write an article on this, but I probably could. I think it sets us up to probably uh, accept other leftist uh, tendencies and ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that, that's, that's excellent. So, so, I mean, what, tell us, like the basic, what is the basic of the conservative critique of Nazism in the 30s and 40s when it's first coming on the scene? And and, and maybe well, also, who are the conservatives at this point? What do conservatives, the conservative movement looks a bit different than our modern movement as well. So who's who's reacting to them and, and what is the basis of their critique? Well, I didn't really talk about the 30s and 40s in the article, uh, which would have been an interesting study. I don't think National Review is in print yet. I don't remember when that no. started. I think it was around, around 1950 or so. <laughs> so I, I only focused on that because I figured that's an accepted. Today's conservatives will look back at National Review and say that's an accepted source. Mm-hmm. Um, during the 30s and 40s, I mean, I, that's I, I'm not as knowledgeable on that. I mean, I know um, there were critiques, of course, uh, of Nazism. Um mostly in the same vein as like they would have critiqued Bolshevism or communism or even the new deal. Like these were Mm -hmm. all at the time, Hitler wasn't the bad boy that he's seen as today. So, you know, Napoleon would have been more like the Hitler of that time, perhaps. So before Hitler was seen as like the the architect of all evil, um, he was just one of many other dictator type figures who was interested in modernizing his country, taking it from a traditional country to a more uh, modern, um, I guess, uh, kind of post post traditional enlightenment type, you know, based on reason of some kind, based on principles, kind of uh, land centrally planned. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Of yeah. course, that had yeah. something to do with it, and it, yeah. ideology, of course, reigning and impressing that upon <clears throat> traditional institutions, emancipating people from things that enslave them, and seeing this as an inevitable thing. I mean, the Reich was going to last a thousand years. That this this won't. This is the final stage of history. We're gonna. We figured out the solution as if society is some kind of a mechanism, and we can now control it. And the people before us didn't understand how things work, but we do, we understand the principles kind of like science, you know, the way that we approach the natural world. And, uh, and so, so I, I think that probably would have been the critique. My, my understanding is more, you know, fifties and sixties, which is what I was writing about. But, uh, I, I mean, it'd be interesting though, to go back I- into that time and just see what they were saying, but that's what I suspect. Well, you did have, so, so you chose the fifties and sixties because the fifties the, the and sixties are sort of when you have this emergence of, You've got Russell Kirk writing a book that tries to, I think, defend, well, define and defend conservatism as a distinct tradition. So he writes The Conservative Mind, um, I think, in 54. And then at the same time, you've got National Review kicking off in the 50s, um, trying to be an intellectual hub for um, conservative thought. Um, So there's sort of a new organization and, and new institutions built around movement conservatism at that time and so okay so that's that's kind of the the thrust of your um the yeah, yeah. Of your, i mean i quote 
Mm-hmm. I quote from Russell Kirk. I, I quote from other contributors like Gerhardt, uh, Niemeyer, um, Eric. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm probably going to botch his name, but uh, Von Kunelt, uh, Leiden. Um, they had some foreign contributors who were more, and this makes sense, they were dealing more closely with Nazism, right? Because it had just been defeated in their backyards. And it wasn't a big, it was never like a big threat to uh, Americans. And that's, that was one of the quotes I know I, I had quoted in there, and I can't remember which contributor had said this, but um, it was in a National Review piece that basically admitted, look, the, the Nazis w- were a threat, but they're no longer a threat. So there's no reason to focus on them as if they are somehow uh, about to rise up again and overthrow the government and, and you know, do their Nazi thing. That's just there. We actually have bigger threats that are more important for us to focus on. And I think conservatives have often been practical like that. So they weren't playing this demonization game. They were looking at society and, and reality as it really is and, <clears throat> and seeing uh, and asking what are the threats to uh, people, real tangible people in our country right now. And Nazis weren't weren't that so yeah and the the communist critique of nazism i mean it's kind of like any traditional society that hasn't been liberated liberated by communism has this perennial temptation to go nazi essentially right like this is this if you start caring too much about your religion about your history traditions and customs um it's a short slippery slope from that to you know auschwitz basically that's that's the communist critique and you know and therefore you know you need to you need to you need to run away you need to alienate the individual and all of society from those um those strong gods so to speak that that would you know tempt a society towards uh, totalitarian uh right-wing government which is what they say nazism is but you say it's yes. it's um I think your article argues it's sort of an error of modernism. It's not, it's not at all like an excess of tradition. It's this modern uh, alien ideology. Right. Right. Uh, In fact, I try to go back to someone who would be considered the, the most conservative or I guess the founding member of modern conservatism, if you will, Edmund Burke and the way that he opposed the French revolution. And it's, it's on similar grounds that you saw conservatives in national review when they did talk about Nazis taking on the Nazis, um, that there was this uh, instinct in enlightenment and rationalism to free mankind from constraints uh, that could have been in you know, the family and in other institutions that are traditional, like the church, uh, in labor relationships, and all these different things that had been in effect and, and taken for granted in society for sometimes centuries. Um, it, we were now questioning those things and uh, locating the source of human oppression in those things. And so to try to, to, to liberate man from these things was kind of uh, the goal. And, and there were different versions uh, of Enlightenment rationalism. Of course, the French Revolution would, would be one version of this, and, and that's what uh, Burke um, wrote against. But, but you, you have classical liberalism being another version of this. You have Nazism or fascism. You have um, communism. And so I, I try to look at the things that all these things have in common with one another. And, um, and, and there is this, I, I would say, more potent critique of Nazism that places it in that context, that, that shows it as this is an ideological framework that sacrifices people to this, this machine, basically, this, this state that now stands in the place of an actual tangible people. And so, 
So for all their, you know, talking about blood and soil, they don't really care. I mean, there were, I'm sure there were some Nazis who cared about blood and soil, especially in the lower ranks. But um, the ideology itself, though, was not uh, an ideology that actually cared for people as people. It was an ideology that cared for an ideology. It was, in other words, it was, it, it was wanting to impose a view of reality upon the country and upon all of Europe. Uh, that was going to be a new order that would be, you know, better and, and even more utopian, to be honest with you. So it was a utopian scheme, and that's pretty much what all of the Enlightenment rationalists, rational, excuse me, rationalistic schemes are. Well, it yeah. did strike me and, and you reading can, your reading your piece. Oh, go ahead, Josh. No, go ahead, Timon. Well, it did, it did strike me um, this very point reading your piece that um, you know the, the Nazis, even though of course in today's discourse and this this brings us back to you know Stephen Wolf's book if you talk about nationalism the immediate referent is going to be Nazism it's going to be 20th century nationalist movements in Europe which are responding to lots of changes in material conditions and all these sorts of things and and uh, post World War one conditions but the the interesting thing that you're you're highlighting is actually the Nazis had no respect for maybe even cognizance of um, the type of nationhood, the type of the definition we would give to a nation and therefore nationalism as an organic, providential, um, you know, outgrowth of customs, traditions, language, all these things that, uh, you know, we would say inside of God's providence is, is produced. And you can't, um, you know, you, you don't exactly choose who your neighbor is and these things. It's, it's geographically bound. It's contingencies, histories, all this stuff. They don't appreciate that. They're utopian. They want to construct the nation in a in a puristic sort of way, uh, according to abstract, you know, specifications that are imposed upon um, the, this location in this time in history. And so really, they uh, I mean, I, I was reminded of a piece that um Peter Hitchens wrote for First Things several years ago called Hitler the Progressive um, and was highlighting similar themes in this way, saying, you know, Hitler's always affiliated with the right wing um, and he could, it couldn't be less true because he doesn't love or appreciate these these sorts of natural goods um, and, and aspects of natural human interaction and behavior that can't be orchestrated in a lab, you know, in a sort of clinical fashion that the Nazis were, were preferable to. Yeah, it's like uh, when people critique Karl Marx and say, well, Marx didn't even feed his own family. Marx obviously didn't yeah. believe in helping people like he said in his ideology. But, like Hitler's similar in that respect where it's like people want to uh, make him out to be a, a right wing character who was uh, trying to impose traditional values like love for family <laughs> and, um, you know, love for country. And, and And then you look at Hitler's actual life. And I mean, he has a mistress he never marries, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, he, he is known, his whole reputation is that he's given to bouts of anger and chews people out and doesn't treat them well. Um, it's, it's not someone who seems to actually love people in place and traditional things the way he says he does. And anyway, his views of the church, I mean, if nothing else proves it, uh, his comments about religion and Christianity uh, proved that. I mean, he said certain public things people want to latch on to, like, like for instance, uh, uh, promoting Martin Luther as this kind of mm -hmm. bulk uh, hero. And mm -hmm. so he'll, he'll do that, but he's, it's because Martin Luther's already embedded in 
the, the Volk hero tradition of Germany, and he's a useful <laughs> symbol to use for Hitler's Nazism. It's not because he likes Luther. He does not like Christianity. He wants to eradicate it. So, so, so that's not very right wing in the modern sense when we think of right wing as conservative values, conser- traditional obligations, those kinds of things. That's, that wasn't Hitler. Yeah. The, and so this, this is another question I had, if, if, you know, which you're, which you're bringing up, which is sort of the, the left wing playbook and the use of Nazism as a, of course, a pejorative, no one's claiming it's, you know, a positive label to have, but it's an insult and it's, it's like the highest level insult. You can probably level it somewhat. It's, it's tantamount to racist as well. Um, it's, it's curious that this developed uh, in this way, this kind of rhetoric of a perpetual fear of a resurgent Nazism or it's a, it's a sort of perpetual enemy. I mean, I'm reminded of, um, you know, I think it's Curtis Yarvin that, that's pointed this out before, this weird propaganda that emerged after World War II in America that even started like pushing this kind of narrative. Like there's that, um, there's that weird documentary you can find on YouTube called Hitler Lives and it's all about like, you know, the, the German will rise again. And like, we always got to be prepared for this. And it's, it's this perpetual struggle, you know, that's going to go throughout e- eternity, I guess. So it's this weird emergence of this kind of rhetoric, especially on the left post-World War II that comes to a crescendo, you know, after the sixties. Um, and as you're pointing out, you know, even it, the conservatives aren't latching onto it yet, but it's starting to exist. And now it seems that all parties have adopted it. And it's just a way we interact with each other of, you know, who can call each other Nazi the, the loudest. So where, do, I mean, why do you think it does emerge and what, uh, what function or ut- utility do you think it serves in these types of debates, good or bad? Well, I don't know about you. I mean, I grew up uh, with the video games that I played, a lot of the movies that I watched, it was World War II stuff. And it was, yeah. the Nazis were always the bad guys. They were always vilified. And um, my grandfather is a World War II vet. He was in the um, the Pacific Theater, but I know, you know, from people who are just older than me, who who because I, I realize my grandfather's older than most, and most people don't have grandfathers who fought for World War II. But um, for people even just a little older than me, they did. And so, you know, this this was a villain. I think it's unique to our time in a way. This this was like one of the the arch villains who. Um, who fomented the Holocaust, which when we discovered that, of course, we were uh, just aghast. And, and, um, and, and all, he was a European villain, too. So it was he, he subjected people that were in close contact with in Europe, uh, both culturally and uh, in proximity to and you know trading with and in alliances with. And so it, it, it's felt, I think, more strongly that he was a big threat to to all of us together, you know, League of Nations nato whatever like the, the these organizations now that try to bind uh, western countries together and so we don't want to see him come back again and um and i think it just became more and more in pop culture and in just every arena looking at viewing the nazis as the epitome of evil there's never anything redeemable i mean it used to be that even um uh the desert fox rommel right he was kind of revered for not not for his political beliefs, but you know his leadership style, his uh, military genius, these kinds of things. I mean, you could kind of see, yeah, he he fought for the wrong side, but you know he's he's got some some good qualities or whatever. And you can't really that that's not even possible to do anymore. You can't make any distinctions. Anything that can be construed as Nazi is evil. 
it, it, to a point that uh, it, it's really the worst evil that can, there can possibly be. I mean, we all believe, I guess, in total depravity, even people who deny it because Nazis, it, it's, the, it's the only example that I've been given even in evangelism when you try to awaken people's conscience. I mean, that, that's what like, even like Ray Comfort, where, where does he go? He'll say, what do you think Hitler should uh, go to heaven? You know, <laughs> like, or you don't think Hitler should go to hell? You know, to try to awaken people in Christianity uh, towards Christianity to show them that there should be justice because we all know Hitler is deserving of justice. So this is just, I think, organically happened to some extent over time. You have communist subversion also taking place during the Cold War, and uh, obviously um, they hate the Nazis. Th th those were their enemies, and so I think as we've you know, the American left kind of warming up to the Soviets and uh, liking Soviet and Maoist ideas and things like that. I think that they naturally adopted also the uh, the arch enemy of uh, the people that now they're admiring to the East. So I don't know. Hitler just fits the bill in so many ways. Um, and and now because of that helpful boogeyman, there's a political edge that you get if you can somehow tie your opponent to being a fascist or a Nazi or, or, or one of these new kind of Nazi-esque uh, titles that people use to try to like Christian nationalists, right. Or uh, neo-Confederate or, you know, I don't know, e even things like toxic masculine, I think tend to like go into this, like where there, mm -hmm. it's just a title. You don't have to argue for it. You just smear the person with it. And we all know that that's the worst thing possible. So, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, seems I, to be, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd be curious if you guys have other. Yeah, thoughts no, I on think that. I, I think you're right. Like it's and it's not. Um, you know, I, th I think the conservative, the truly conservative traditionalist viewpoint would say, you know, there were like modernism had a lot of horrible fail, like horrific failures in the 20th century on. And they came from a lot of different moderate, like strictly modernist ideologies so like German nihilism develops into Nazism and that has a particular expression, short lived, but pretty, pretty brutal and violent during its short time period. And then you've got mo like absolute monsters who had much longer runs like um, Stalin and Mao and smaller dictators in Southeast Asia. Um, and, and, but, but for whatever reason, you know, Nazism has become the, it's, it's kind of like the paradigmatic way that politics can go wrong. It's almost like the only way or the most, certainly the most, anything that's right wing, you know, in, in political rhetoric has like this, it, it has this risk. Like it, it, don't you know where this leads? This leads to Auschwitz. That's sort of the implicit threat underlying any kind of, um, you know, uh, right-wing movement. Um, it's, it's subject to that critique and it's, it's rhetorically powerful, like incredibly. So, um, it, it's in a lot of ways it controls the right and has for the last 50 years. Um, because we've, I, th I think as you argue, you know, we've, you know, largely bought into that, to that framing to some degree when we're, you know, if we're, we advocate lower taxes or welfare reform, and then we're accused of being Nazis and we can immediately go on the defensive, even, even with respect to a policy like that. Well, especially, yeah. especially morals legislation, right? Any, any standard imposed um, of, of moral, um, moral behavior is immediately castigated as fascist. Um, as if that, again, I mean, Josh has already kind of dispelled that notion, especially if you're asserting uh, traditional Christian morality. Um, but it just, it works or it's effective for anything that is 
um, especially imposing order on society. So that's why I think you even see, um, you know, a slew of articles over the past two, two, three years that are like, you know, nutrition and working out and these things, they're all, they're all fascist, right? They're all Nazi. And you can just do it that simply. Um, it's to, if there's any kind of pursuit of excellence, if there's any distinguishing between, you know, non-egalitarian distinctions uh, between people and society of like, it's better to be healthy and fit than to be obese and unhealthy. That's, you know, because now in this sort of um, postmodern leftist logic, you're othering people, you know, it all goes together and you can, yeah. you can kind of package fascism with colonialism. And as John, as you raise neo-confederacy, like all of our evils get packaged and they're all, they all become this blob. They're all the same. And then you just hurl it at anybody. And I think the the main thing that John's pointed out, that's, really stupid and damaging about this is the extent to which conservatives have trafficked in the same rhetoric and used the same weapons, not only thinking that they'll actually work against their their political opponents, which they don't. They bounce right off of leftists, even if they are doing actually totalitarian things, um, but then self-policing with the weapons that the left has supplied them. And that's the, the most damaging part. And, the, and it perpetuates the legitimacy of these types of critiques, which are really hollow and, and not historically uh, based whatsoever. Yeah, that was excellent. That, that was well said. I couldn't agree more. I think that's exactly what we're undergoing. And it's sad to see in conservative circles because uh, we have a tendency to, at very early stages, I think, get rid of people who could do some great good if they were to uh, be allowed to climb the ladder, so to speak. But we, we don't let them climb the ladder because we're so afraid of what the media is going to do with maybe something they said that could be maybe four steps down the line somehow construed as Nazi S because they said something that might've suggested they believe in a hierarchy, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And they think that some things are better than others, as you said, uh, time and uh, value judgments. I mean, that, that's a, a very scary thing. And, and I, I even use the example of um, uh, the, the pro-life uh, worker in Ohio who was recently uh, and, and this this wasn't a, a Nazi thing, uh, but this was this is really I'm showing that the Nazi thing is a stepping stone to this, where she basically said Jesus Christ is on Twitter the only way and basic Christian doctrine. And there were uh, there was a Jewish, um, and I'm saying this Jewish because he's uh, apparently religiously Jewish. Uh, uh, Republican congressman who went after that. And then there was, I, I believe there was another Republican congressman, also Jewish, who uh, in Ohio, who backed him up. And uh, Max Miller is the name of the guy who um, initially tweeted against this idea that the exclusivity of Christ. And and she's canned, right? She's, she's gone. Um, and that will be with her now forever. Lizzie Marbuck's her name. She'll always have this kind of stain that she, she was rejected by her own for saying things that even a few years ago, I don't think would have gotten her this much grief. Um, and, and, and that's the concern I have. It's not, uh, the, the, some of the people who critiqued what I said seem to be very concerned that there's actual Nazis who are going to rise the ranks, who are going to get to positions of authority in the conservative movement. And I, my concern is more, you know, whether that's true or not, we have a very powerful kind of chemotherapy that we're mm -hmm. applying to ourselves that's killing a lot of good cells and it's killing way more good cells. In fact, I think that that chemo is much more likely to kill the conservative movement than any kind of Nazi cancer that we supposedly mm -hmm. have. 
Yeah, I wrote, I wrote about this. This is totally coincidental because I had already been working on this piece. And so I'm not putting any of this on you, John. Um, but I wrote also this week, um, or I guess it'd be, it'd be last week now, last Friday. Um, just talking about the, the, it's sort of ridiculous to me that, you know, the, this constant specter is hanging over not just the conservative movement, but the country generally. Um, you've already pointed out sort of the organic rise of, of, uh, why it makes sense, at least organically, for Nazism to be this, the, the pinnacle of evil and kind of the, this ultimate fear, you know, and I think that's that's probably uh, true in the way that's come about. But it's it's sort of ridiculous to me that it remains this clear and present danger when there's absolutely zero real ev material evidence that the, that it's that it's happening, right? So these guys, you know, in this demonstration over uh, a week ago or so in Orlando, you know, there's like a dozen of them. And this is presented as being the evidence that the Fourth Reich is like in motion. You know, it was just, just ridiculous. I don't understand where this comes from. So um, I certainly don't want the Fourth Reich to rise up in America. I just see no indication that it is. But all of the media attention and focus is given to these like weird, you know, these clowns that are hanging out in Orlando with tattoos on their faces. They clearly have lots of lots of issues. And it's where all the energy is pumped into. And then it's, uh, as you say, the, it's, it feeds defensive crouch conservatism, because anytime there's this kind of supposed evidence given that this is still a major issue in, in America, uh, you know, we respond uh, just like we're trained to uh, the conserv conservatives well, do generally. And I think it's arguable that you probably wouldn't even see a group like that if it were not for the media attention they know oh, that's they exactly get right. Yeah. If they go with these symbols and slogans and dress the way they do, they know that the media is going to amplify their message. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, th so they do look like a freak. They do mm -hmm. put on, you know, the uniforms and get the flags and everything else that we know is so out of touch with, you know, 99.9% .9 of citizens, but they, they might be able to increase that percentage just a little bit because they're in and they're in a black hole. They're not able to get mm -hmm. their message out without media help. Mm -hmm. And the media is more than happy to help them because the media has this relationship, uh, the symbiotic relationship where they can use that to tarnish all conservatives. You know, the 50 percent right. of people in this country they don't like. And so it, it's it, to me, if the right's going to um, criticize anything about that whole scenario, it should be the way that the media uh, amplifies. You know, yeah. Gives them attention. Yeah. yeah, that should be the thing that where if, if you really don't want to see the Fourth Reich, stop giving these people an incentive to publicly advocate their views. Um, and so, so, yeah, to me, it's just so backwards when we instead, the tendency is to try to join the parade of denouncements mm -hmm. to say, oh, we too also denounce this. Right. And it's like, you know, you and I could both say that we already you have and I, and I don't have a problem saying it on this podcast that, of course, I don't want to see a fourth rag. Of course, I'm against Nazis. Right. But it's kind of like when Trump is asked constantly to denounce mm -hmm. white supremacy, it, it, it gets a little tiring and, and you, you realize yeah. that there's a rhetorical thing going on that maybe you don't want to be a part of. Like, I don't mm -hmm. want to just keep giving my allegiance uh, to this, what I would consider to be this fanatical, ideological obsession with Nazis mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. comes from the left. I don't want to keep legitimizing that and saying, oh, yeah, like that's the thing that we should look at to police our side and to make sure that we have good candidates instead of bad ones. Um, yeah. No, like th there's much better standards to use that actually come from the conservative tradition. 
we don't need to be uh, using this ideological, it's really a cancel culture technique. Mm -hmm. Because um, like I said, what we're going to end up doing and what we are doing is we eliminate people who should be in positions of authority because we're so afraid of what the left is going to do uh, with them and how the left's going to tie them to some kind of a proto-fascist idea. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's exactly right, that the real or what conservatives need to realize is, is one, how they're being gamed um, by the rhetorical plays and not to reinforce them by joining in and certainly not to apply them you know, to each other in-house, uh, which they often do because it's cheap and easy. Um, but then also to realize that the, the maneuver being played by the by legacy media or, or mainstream media generally uh, with ginning up these controversies all the time or making sure there's sufficient coverage of these things regularly. Um, so they're kind of in their hip pocket as ammunition to corroborate their larger narratives about what conservatives are doing, especially, you know, Trumpian conservatives, especially that sort of end of, of the right wing as they see it. Um, and to just not feed it whatsoever, not give it any ammunition um, or an amplification, um, because that's all it is. And so I take it as being very disingenuous um, because uh, it, they try one. They're trying so hard Two, as you said, these these people, these strange people would get no attention if it weren't for them. Uh, you know, the left media is very quick to say, no, we shouldn't uh, give any coverage to, uh, you know, shooters or something or, or serial killers. I don't know any kind of criminals because it will just give them what they want. But they don't apply that to uh, the people that by their own standards, they would say are the worst criminals in society, which are, you know, cosplaying Nazis. Um, so it's, it's, I think the point is just that, uh, in a roundabout way that conservatives just need to realize how this stuff is used and not, not play the game because it's ultimately to their detriment. Yeah. What are you telling your people when you constantly apply that standard, when you, when you make that something that they, they always must have in their minds, uh, this fear that they'll be linked to Nazis. It, it creates a pathology is what it does. A, a paranoia. Mm -hmm. that lurking under the shadows is always this Nazi figure. And there's other threats lurking under the shadows. That's not mm -hmm. really the one that we should probably be the most concerned about. But there's this paranoia over that, that, that we'll all be sunk, we'll all be destroyed if they can link us to Nazis. And so you, you really get your people uh, in conservative institutions um, to, to behave in ways they normally wouldn't mm -hmm. and to... Uh, to alliance with uh, people maybe they normally wouldn't and not alliance or associate with other people that they, maybe they should. And it, it really, um, it changes their behavior. It, it mm -hmm. enables, uh, I think, leftists more often than not to get their foot in the door uh, and, and come in. And, and I think that's probably what's happened in a lot of mm -hmm. conservative institutions. I mean, national, I mean, case in point, National Review, which I'm going to their articles from the 50s, 60s, and looking at what they have to say about Nazism. And, and as I'm reading the articles, I'm just thinking, wow, you know, this magazine has changed so much. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, I mean, they had some really good articles back then. And I'm not saying they mm -hmm. don't every once in a while have a good article now, but it's uh, they, they are they're not on the right like they were. They, they're not conservative mm -hmm. like they were. I think that's obvious to anyone who might still read National Review, who knows what they used to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why is that? Well, part of it might be because we've imported these pathologies. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and so there's this constant effort to distance ourselves from anything that would value people in place, right? Mm -hmm. Because the left says that's Nazi. And so in the course of doing that, we lose our conservatism and we just become uh, another brand, another really alternative to the left that's like maybe an earlier iteration of progressivism where we're not yeah. really that much different substantially, except that 
we want to conserve the 1990s or something. Right. And, and, yeah. um, and that's where I see like mainstream conservatism now. Mm -hmm. Well, that's it's something else I, um, that just came to mind there of how, you know, thinking about how recent this sort of trend may, may be. Um, I'm, I'm just in the middle of Eric uh, Kaufman's book, The Rise and Fall of Anglo-America, right, which is a Harvard University Press book from 2004. It's a it's a, you know, it's sociology and, and history and these sorts of things. It's fascinating. It's a great, great book so far. And he's just talking. But the point is, the in 2004, mainstream academic press, maybe the ac academic press in the country, he's able to write dispassionately and with a, seemingly without critique um, within academia for talking about things like ethnic ethnicity eth even uses the phrase ethne like someone else we know does who got in trouble for it now he's talking about nationalism and all these sorts of things without any reference to nazism or the third reich like any any sense that he needs to do that up front to to um you know to calm everybody right. down he's able just to have no this qualifications no qualifications and so this thing not only is bad for conservatives politically and in coalition building, but it's bad for for everybody, especially conservatives intellectually. Even if you're not interested in politics, you're you know the thing that Christian nationalism as a discussion that Stephen Wolf you know somewhat inaugurated is is to return to consideration of you know fundamental political principles, especially those that are older within the Reformed tradition. And all of that has been sort of hijacked because of the exact uh, rhetorical dynamics you're talking about, and it's stifling to real and intel rigorous intellectual debate. And that, that's one of the reasons that I included um, some, just if people want to look further into this, some references like James Donahue's book, uh, Hitler's Conservative Opponents in Bavaria. Um, I included some uh, other sources uh, like, um, uh, I'm trying to think. There were some primary sources, some, I guess, yeah, that I also included that. Yeah, yeah, that, that told the story essentially of like Hitler's interaction with the church in Nazi Germany and and Christians. And, um, and, 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 you know, the main point of all this is that the people that are being labeled as Nazi today, the Christian nationalists uh, or, or people who, who might not even use the term, but they're being kind of lassoed into it, they were the... If, if you could have gone back to Germany and you looked in Bavaria and you saw really mainly Catholic um, people who resisted Hitler, they would have looked more similar to today's Christian nationalists than Nazis mm -hmm. ever did. And, and and that's a point that I think needs to be explored more, that the, the arch rivals of the Nazi in Germany itself, not not an outside force like Soviet funded, you know, Bolshevism or, or anything like that, like like in Germany itself the people who resisted Hitler's rise would now be considered probably Christian nationalists. Mm -hmm. They were skeptical of uh, classical liberalism too. I mean, they were, they were just, they wanted a Christian society. A, a, they, they were the remnants of Christendom, right? Mm -hmm. So th that I think is worth exploring because Hitler did, you know, jail many pastors and persecute them and kill them. And I mean, th th there was a whole war against the church that, Leftists don't seem to want to talk about it all, but it's out there. And um, conservatives, I think, have not just bought into the left's framing of this, but they bought into the left's ignorance of this mm -hmm. because they're not looking at the facts in an objective way that would give them the escape hatch that they so desire to show, hey, these are the people that we identify with, right, in, in Bavaria. The, these... Um, 
we, we have examples of people who resisted Hitler. I mean, the only one you're allowed to have is Bonhoeffer, right? That's the only mm-hmm. guy. But, mm-hmm. but I, I quote, I, I, I talk about uh, Friedrich Augustus Voigt, uh, who was sentenced to death uh, by the Nazis, who was a German jurist. And, um, and, and he, I'm sorry, not Voigt. I'm, I'm looking at my own article now and I'm, I'm getting confused because Voigt, Voigt was a, a National Review columnist who wrote about this. Now, there was another guy. Now I'm looking for it. Um, Helmuth, is it Helmuth James von Malt, maybe? Yeah, Hel- Helmuth James von Malt was the guy. Um, also a German name, obviously. Uh, I was condemned to death in 1945 for, for consulting with clergy on the practical ethical demands of Christianity. And he, this is what he said. Christianity and we national socialists have one thing in common and one thing only. We claim the whole man. Hmm. So there's a totalitarian instinct uh, in Nazism. And uh, people who have an allegiance to Jesus Christ and the church are obviously going to resist that. If you want to make sure that Nazism does not gain a foothold in America, encourage Christianity, right? Mm-hmm. Encourage people to have an allegiance that goes beyond the government to a sovereign Lord of the universe that will make them more resistant to Nazism. And that one of the problems with Germany is the church had weakened so much under neo-orthodoxy, um, under just the, the, the higher you know, German rationalism and skepticism and, and higher criticism that uh, people like uh, Wellhausen were, were in importing. Like, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say that many of the people, even in the German resistance movement, were part of this, uh, this, uh, you know, this theology that really weakened the church is pietism. So, um, so maybe that's one of the lessons we should glean from all this, like mm-hmm. encouraging Christianity as a bulwark against this is probably one of the best things we can do. Instead, we're tearing it down because we say that that itself mm-hmm. is Nazi-esque. Well, that's mm-hmm. just ignorant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Couldn't agree, agree more with that. Um, I think that's a great word to end on. Josh, you got anything to add? No, I, I think um, everybody should go read this article and really read the, I think, follow a lot of the references you leave here, John. I mean, just a lot of a lot of good resources to, to follow, including these Bavarian proto-Christian nationalists. And uh, yeah, it, 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 thank you for this. I, I think it was a very provocative article that a lot of conservatives would do well to, to read and, and, and understand fully. So um, my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you for running. It. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, gentlemen, I think, I think with that, we can call it a wrap. John, appreciate your time today. Time in. Thank you as always, uh, to, to the audience. Thank you for listening. You can, as always find us on, uh, Apple podcasts, Spotify, um, Podbean, wherever else find podcasts are sold or made available. Please, uh, subscribe, leave us a review. Uh, that helps us in our, in our rankings, helps our reach to extend. Uh, we appreciate your attention and, you can check us out in our journal at AmericanReformer.org. Uh, John, where, where can folks find you? Uh, JohnHarrisPodcast.com is the easiest place. All right. JohnHarrisPodcast.com. Wonderful. All right. Thank you very much. God bless you, everyone. Until next time. God bless. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer Podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer.